you know, in my party and frankly in the other party, you're starting to sense this belief among people that strong men work in the Middle East. They don't. In the era of Twitter and Facebook and information, nobody wants to be oppressed. There is no culture, no government, no culture, no people anywhere that want to be oppressed. It's 2018, Chessie. And we are back. My name is Chessie Gortsunian. I'm going to be your co-host for this episode. And I'm Ryan Maddox. Welcome to episode 13 of Global, or the first episode of 2018. Chessie, tell them what we're all about. If you're a first-time listener, or if your New Year's resolution was to learn more about this ever-changing world, Global is the podcast for you. Global is a monthly podcast featuring one country per episode where we talk about the past, present, and future of the country in question. That's right. Last month, we deciphered one of the most politically confusing countries in the world, Bosnia and Herzegovina. So for this month, we figured... You know, we ease into the year, take a take a nice, easy country to understand like Iraq. <laughs> but seriously, this country and the topics that are discussed when hearing about Iraq are extremely complex. So we'll try to narrow our focus for this episode down to about 2003 and on. And just for the record, we will not be litigating the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. I think there's enough literature out there that discusses this contested issue. Trust me, Iraq's current political situation and background is enough to fill out an entire 45 minute podcast. Oh, I have no doubt about that, Ryan. There's plenty. And if you have any feedback, Feedback, corrections, or even compliments, please reach out to us. You can email us. That's podcast at IRI.org. Or leave us a comment in the review section. So, Chessy, you're in our Middle East North Africa division. What do we need to know about Iraq? What are the fast facts? The Republic of Iraq, or Jumhuriyat al Iraq. What was that? <laughs> is a country in Western Asia and it's bordered by Turkey, Iran, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Syria. Arabic and Kurdish are its official languages, but Turkmen, Syriac, and Armenian are also spoken in the country. Okay. Iraq's a federal parliamentary republic with Baghdad as its capital. The key players that you need to know about are President Fouad Massoum, Prime Minister Al-Abadi, and its three vice presidents, VPs Ayad Alawi, Nouri al-Maliki, and Usaima al-Nujafi. That's three VPs, Jesse. Yeah, this actually happened in the 2005 drafting of their new constitution to accurately represent their three majority ethnic groups. And these are Sunni Muslim Arabs, Shiite Muslim Arabs, and mostly Sunni Kurds. Mostly Sunni Kurds. Are they all not all Sunni? No, not all Kurds are Sunnis. There are actually some Shia as well. Okay. Islam is Iraq's official religion, but in terms of sectarian breakdown, 55 to 60 percent of Iraqis are Shia Muslim, whereas 40 percent are Sunni. I know the Shia, Sunni, and Kurds are the three majority groups mm -hmm. in Iraq. Where are they located? So if you think about, if you take Iraq as a whole, the Shia, the Arab Shia, are mostly located in the center eastern part of the country, and then the 40 percent Sunni are in the central west part of the country, and the Kurds are mostly in the north. They're up north, okay. Iraq is also a really young country. 60% of its population is under the age of 24. Wow. And lastly, Iraq is one of the founding members of the Arab League, which was created in 1945. All right, Chessie, we've gotten our vegetables. Give us the dessert. Give me the creme brulee, if the you will. what? Because you speak French. <laughs> the what are the fun brulee? facts? Give me the fun, fast facts. 
Okay. Um, all right. I got you, Ryan. So just so you know, Alibaba and the 40 Thieves was actually written in Iraq about a thousand years ago. Iraq is also known as the cradle of civilization because the area where it rests in old Mesopotamia is where mankind first began to read, write, create laws, live, and organize in governments under cities. And for our loyal listeners who tune into our last episode on Bosnia and Herzegovina, you'll know this one. The oldest known writing system was developed in Iraq around 3200 BC. This writing form is known as cuneiform. Again, French. It's cuneiform? Cuneiform? Cuneiform. Cuneiform. It uses about 600 signs instead of an alphabet, and each sign stands for a word or a syllable. For this last final fact, Ryan, how'd you get to work today? Well, I started... How do you know what time it is on your watch? I just look at the... Well, you can thank Iraq for that, because the most important inventions, such as the 60-minute hour, the 60-second minute, the wheel, as well as maps, were all originated in Iraq. So I would not be where I am today without Iraq. Pretty much, yeah. That's what you're telling me. Mm, Absolutely. Well, you know what? We got a great lineup of guests to tell us about this wonderful country. We have Congressman Adam Kinsey. From Illinois. He is a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he served as a major in the Air Force. He is currently on the House Committee on Foreign Affairs and co chairs the Congressional Iraq Caucus. And for all our younger listeners thinking of running for elected office, at only 39, Congressman Kinzinger is one of the youngest members of Congress. Thank you. And thanks for your guys' good work. And then we have former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Zalmay Khalilzad. Ambassador Khalilzad is the former ambassador to the United Nations, serving from 2007 to 2009. Prior to representing the United States at the UN, he was the U.S. ambassador to Iraq from 2005 to 2007 and the ambassador to Afghanistan from 2003 to 2005. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's yeah, a thank great you. pleasure. Thank you. And last but not least, we're joined by Brian Zuprik. He's the program manager for IRI's Iraq programs. He's been with IRI since 2009 and is a graduate of George Washington University and has a degree in international affairs. All right, global team. Thanks for having me. Let's get started. I'm going to start us off with the hard question. Please. I'm going to give you the impossible task of summarizing the past 25 years and the key events, historical events that have happened in Iraq that leads us to where we are today. Iraq uh, became an independent uh, country in contemporary period in 1932. Uh, It had been uh, an Ottoman region, and after the First World War, Uh, when uh, uh, the Brits and the French defeated the Ottomans, among others, they inherited uh, the region of uh, Iraq and Syria, and they controlled it from the, uh, 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 until independence and the formation of these two countries. Iraq was a kingdom until 1958. Then a series of coups occurred, mostly uh, led by Arab nationalists uh, and Ba'athists. Saddam Hussein emerged as the leader of Iraq in uh, 1979. He, in effect, had been uh, the dominant figure for a period before then, but he became the president and the leader in 79. The big events since 1979 that has shaped uh, contemporary Iraq uh, have been the Iran-Iraq War, uh, uh, then the invasion of Kuwait, Uh, Then the post-invasion containment of Iraq and Iraq's effort to uh, rebuild its um, military uh, capability and to get out of the containment and sanctions policies uh, in the 90s. Um, uh, And then uh, the the 2003 
invasion. Congressman Kinzinger, you were stationed in Iraq twice during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your time in the country? Yeah, I was out of Balad, and uh, I actually flew for the special ops, so we had our own separate compound on Balad, which was cool because we didn't have to wear uniforms, and you know we got to do cooler things. Um, so I didn't interact a lot with the Iraqi people, you know, but we would go out basically every night on missions or every day on missions. We we kind of had a twenty four hour cycle, and uh, you know I, I remember specifically when I was there in 08 was when the surge was really starting to take hold, and then in 09 it had really taken hold, and and I remember being there in. 08 and I fly a reconnaissance plane that basically finds bad guys and I remember looking down in 08 and you know it's a war zone you can tell and in 09 the the difference of just being able to look out the window or look on our cameras and see I remember watching kids outside playing soccer at one point and I'm like wow this thing's really happening this is taking hold so uh, it was a great experience um, I know if I if I was transported back to that base now, I'd recognize all the smells and everything, and just it's a unique place. So what's interesting about your experience in Iraq is that you experienced it as military and civilian yeah. and elected official. So in your opinion, how did those experiences shape your opinion of the country today? You know, you you uh, when you're there in a war capacity, if you're not interacting with, you know, like we had guys in the army. This was kind of neat when the surge was taking hold. I, I remember reading an article about. You know, I forget which unit, but they would basically go to the bars downtown Baghdad. And it was kind of controversial in the military because it's the military is like there's a no drinking policy in, in Iraq. But, you know, Iraq has a pretty vibrant night scene. And uh, and but it was about people, you know, our military going in to kind of build that community thing. And uh, and so from a military perspective, though, you know, it's more of a black and white mission. Right. We're going to go out and find the bad guys and hopefully they don't exist anymore. Or we capture them. When I went back as a congressman. Um, you know, you get to see the country and the personality. It's, it's not that you're going to execute a mission. It's now you're, you're stepping into the art of diplomacy. And, you know, it's the understanding that it's a culture that neither of you really fully understand each other. There's a lot of nuances. When you talk about the Iran issue, for instance, it's a very nuanced issue. It's not black and white like we see it. And uh, But most importantly, you get to see the people and the personality. And you realize, you know, one of the problems, and it's it's probably not unique to the United States, but whenever you hear of a war or violence somewhere else, it's always just that somewhere else. And, you know, they're faceless. They're not real people because they're, you know, you don't see it. Well, when you go into a country and you see the kids or you go to a refugee camp, like I went to, and you see people that, you know, really had their lives turned upside down by ISIS, for instance, uh, it, it's just a whole new level of uh, realization. Ambassador Khalilzad, you served as ambassador to Iraq uh, from 2005 to 2007. During your term, what kind of political issues were going on? What were you dealing with on a daily basis? Well, uh, as soon as I arrived, the biggest issue was to get the, uh, uh, the Iraqis agree to a constitution. And uh, the big issues that divided the Iraqis uh, were the degree of power of central government versus powers uh, of the provinces. The other big issue was uh, uh, how resources uh, uh, will be uh, controlled and distributed. Iraq is a very rich uh, country in terms of oil and uh, natural gas, but particularly oil, so the control of the oil resources, uh, economic issues, in other words, the uh, the um, uh, issues of the uh, role of Islam, role of religion, uh, the issues of what to do with the Ba'ath Party. At the end, we uh, uh, did get an agreement among Iraqis that uh, uh, Iraq would be a federal state, 
uh, and Kurdish area was recognized autonomous uh, region, and that a lot of decisions would be made jointly between the center and the provincial and regional governments, uh, including issues dealing with oil. The other big issue that uh, uh, I confronted was bringing the Sunni Arabs into the political process because they had boycotted the political process after the invasion uh, by the United States. Uh, a Shia Kurdish coalition essentially was governing Iraq, and the Sunnis were some uh, were around 20 to 25 percent of the population. And there is where you had the start of the insurgency against the new government and against the international forces, including U.S. forces that were there. So uh, 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 there had been an election uh, the year before, at the end of uh, December 2004, uh, and Sunnis had boycotted that election. My goal was uh, to bring them into the constitutional process and uh, for them to for their provinces also to vote in a referendum to, uh, and then to uh, uh, have the Sunni Arabs participate in the election, which was to take place after the constitution was ratified, if the constitution was ratified. And uh, we succeeded. Uh, and then subsequent to the elections that the Sunnis participated also in, uh, the uh, third challenge was to get a national unity government to have Sunnis, Shia, and Kurds participate uh, in, in, a, in a government to agree on who would lead the government, this federal uh, parliamentary uh, system that they had embraced with a prime minister that was going to be all more powerful with a symbolic president to agree on the composition of the government, the program of the government, and, uh, and, and, and uh, responsibilities uh, uh, that both the center and the provincial government would have. So, but yet we had also had to deal with violence at that time. Uh, to make sure the institutions that were being created served all Iraqis. Uh, there had been, as a result of the boycott of the first election, some of the government uh, agencies uh, were led by religious uh, and sometimes sectarian people and we wanted them replaced by people who were uh, non-sectarian, didn't have militia connections. So it was a, it was a whole range of issues in terms of getting a national compact and getting a government that reflected the values and the policies and the programs of that compact. Sounds like a very easy task. <laughs> yeah. So how did you manage to bring all of these key different players to the table to actually agree to this constitution? In engaging them. Uh, uh, there was a belief among the Sunnis, for example, that 9-11 uh, happened in the United States by Sunni Arabs and that the U.S. had... Uh, come to Iraq to take revenge on Sunnis uh, because the regime of Saddam Hussein was lo uh, predominantly Sunni. And to punish the Sunnis, we came to overthrow uh, the uh, Sunni-led government and empower the Shia and uh, tolerated the Shia to go after the Sunnis. Uh, it was an act of revenge, in other words, they believed. And it took me a, a, a great deal of effort and time to... Uh, tried to persuade them that most Americans didn't know the difference between Shia and Sunni, number one. <laughs> and number two, <laughs> that they were pro projecting the way they would calculate and behave, that we had come uh, uh, for our own uh, concerns uh, uh, regarding what was believed to be uh, Iraq's uh, possession or, and the building up of the weapons of mass destruction and that now our prestige, our power was associated with Iraq's success. And for Iraq to succeed, 
all key Iraqi communities had to participate, that we hadn't come there on a tribal agenda to, to support one tribe against the other. Brian, what else would you add? A massive international coalition was responsible in large part for the governance of the country for the better part of a decade. And then with the handover of power of the Status Forces Agreement in 2010-2011 under the Obama administration, the vast majority of U.S. forces pulled out. Um, some would say this precipitated the ISIS rise to power. Others would say that they're essentially unrelated events. Um, I'm not weighing in on that. What we need to look at more is what's happened. What were the root causes of the most recent war in Iraq? Because in re- reality, it's not a single war. It's been a series of a series of conflicts sort of running back to back that are very much interlinked. So, Brian, is it possible to identify the root cause of the rise of ISIS in Iraq? Yeah, I would say so. I, I think that and while there's a number of issues here, including like remnants of the Ba'athist regime and sort of the total degradation of the security and just general civil society in, in Syria, the root causes of the rise of ISIS in Iraq are a lack of political inclusion and poor local governance. And so I'll break that out for you here. The lack of political inclusion is because the the government in Iraq, specifically under the Maliki regime, um, basically shut out all of the Sunni tribes, all of the Sunni provinces, and consolidated power under a largely Iranian-backed government. Not entirely. Like, there's still very much an Iraqi identity to the government, but it certainly was not an identity that included every Iraqi. So that, simply put, like, greatly angered people who were feeling like they were getting no services, they were getting no money, and they had no say in a government that they helped put in power. And then there was just the fact that the local governments themselves were not fully prepared to do their jobs. And so you had just sort of an incredibly disappointed population, um, which was fairly easy to radicalize where needed. And those two factors combined that when ISIS came in, some people took them in with open arms. In other places, there simply was not the political will to stop them. And then the Iraqi army melted away um, under the threat of ISIS. And I'm not a military expert, but really there was just sort of a lack of will among the Iraqi army to defend a country they couldn't really potentially even define. Like, was did they feel that what they were doing was worth it? Was laying their lives down for Mosul worth it? Apparently the answer is no, because hundreds of thousands of Iraqi troops disappeared from the front lines and Iraq's second largest city fell to the Islamic Caliphate. So that's 2013 and 2014. What's next? I would say what's next is that uh, the Kurds, the Peshmerga, um, pushed south because where the Iraqi army fell apart, the, the Kurds still had like uh, the political military will to hold their ground. And they took the opportunity to take a number of disputed territories across northern Iraq. The Peshmerga pushed down to Mosul and took Kirkuk, took a number of other uh, previously disputed areas. And sort of locked down control and legitimately beat back ISIS with help of international partners. And while the Iraqi army was busy rebuilding itself, um, getting international support and also putting together uh, the, the PMUs or the, the Hasht, uh, the Shia militias, some supported by the government, some supported by private entities, some supported by the Iranians. What I would say about this mix of actors is that there's not central control there. there. There's a wild card element to it. And they have caused, in my opinion, as much trouble as they have helped the Iraqi army. They were certainly integral in recapturing a lot of northern Iraq from ISIS. However, now that they're there, 
they're proving very hard to eliminate as a political force, especially as elections approach next year. It's going to become very problematic in Iraq if they are allowed to wield political power like they've wielded their military power. Ambassador Halil Zad, what about Iraq today? What is the political makeup of Iraq today? Who is in power? Iraq uh, has a prime minister uh, who is a Shia Islamist from the party called the Dawa Party. It's uh, part of a coalition, uh, although the course of uh, ministers have boycotted the government past several months. Uh, The Sunnis also are in charge of uh, uh, parliament, the Speaker of Parliament is a Sunni Arab, Mr. Jabouri. The Prime Minister is Mr. Abadi. The President is the court. The, the center has become stronger over time, the central government, Baghdad. Uh, and, uh, and the Shia, which for a period seemed uh, struggling to control the center or feeling more confident now. Uh, the Sunni is, uh, areas have become weaker because of the war. Uh, and the destruction that has occurred, and uh, the, the, the Kurds are struggling because of the referendum. Uh, they are in a weaker position. So, Brian, could you tell us about the September 2017 Kurdish independence referendum? The Kurds, broadly speaking, saw an opportunity to make a final push for independence because this is something that the Kurdish government, the KRG, has been promising to the people of Kurdistan forever, since, since 1991, since before that. But... The feeling in Erbil was that there was an opportunity over the summer and in September to harness international goodwill towards the people of Kurdistan, to make a push for independence, and to use a successful referendum vote for independence, which was almost guaranteed, as a negotiating point with the Iraqi government over both territory and resources, because the Iraqi government had effectively been starving the KRG for resources because A, the Iraqi government itself has been starving for resources, and B, it's not as if there is not ill will between Baghdad and Erbil. There was a lot of international pressure, including from the United States, to call off the referendum in in the days and weeks ahead of it. But they pushed forward nonetheless, ended up with an overwhelming majority in favor of independence, and then the Iraqi government pulled a really a power move politically. Um, that may be too much to say here, but the Iraqi government reacted extremely poorly to the Kurdish referendum. They called it illegal. Um, people in the disputed territory, specifically in Kirkuk, um, were threatened with arrest over, over their support for it. And then within weeks, the Iraqi government moved the military forces that had been involved in the retaking of Mosul towards Kirkuk. Why, why were international players pushing for the delay of this referendum in their what was the thinking behind for that? some it was a delay for some it was asking for it not to happen at all it was seen as ill-timed because during the time when everyone was pressing home the final assault on the last isis strongholds where mosul was falling and isis was basically in full retreat um it was a move by the kurdish government to really rally the support of its people but it was seen as just so incredibly divisive with the rest of the country that they were worried it was going to just undermine military operations and political will. Because what we had seen is 
essentially true joint operations between a whole bunch of militias and the Peshmerga and the Iraqi army and the U.S. military and a number of other forces that came together to take Mosul and to save Iraq. And so that was the primary argument against having the referendum right then. And what would you say is the impact of this referendum on the hopes for a unified Iraq? Well, I'll answer that two ways. The first way I'll say is that the referendum, despite its overwhelming um, support by the Kurdish people, has ended in a dream deferred. Simply put, independence is not happening in the near future now for the people of Kurdistan because the Iraqi military, the Iraqi government, reacted extremely strongly to the referendum results. They, they saw an opportunity to leverage long-standing divides between the two main Kurdish parties, the KDP and the PUK, to force their way into Kirkuk, retake a city that had been considered sort of like the crown jewel of what would be like a, an independent Kurdistan. Divisions inside the Kurdish political establishment have been laid bare in a way that I think really surprised a lot of people. There's major concerns in Baghdad and in the United States that should an independent Kurdistan, even just within the borders of Iraq, become a reality. And this is not my personal opinion. This is just what what I'm seeing here, um, that other groups may see that as an opportunity to push for their own independence, potentially permanently fracturing Iraq into a number of not economically viable mini states. One potentially heartening outcome of all of this, despite the, the insane amount of tensions between the Kurds and the Iraqis right now, is that the Iraqi army, the Iraqi security structure writ large, has regained for the first time in a long time a sense of pride in its work. And the Iraqi people, I think, feel pride in the actions of their military. Congressman Kinzinger, do you think that that Iraqi identity is something that can be a unifier? Yeah, so there's been some really interesting research about this um, and uh, basically showing within Iraq that they're starting to build a national identity again. You know, it used to obviously be Sunni Shia Kurd, and that still plays a role. Um, the Iraqi military, last I saw, and this is probably a six-month-old survey, uh, had about basically an approval rating of what the U.S. military does, like an 80% approval rating among Iraqis. You know, that's the kind of institution that can unify a country. Now, you've got to get past, and again, the broader Middle East conflicts that that permeate Iraq and the influence of Iran. Iran has no interest in seeing a unified and powerful Iraq. Um, we're going to have to get past those, but I, I think there is a it's hard for me to tell, but it seems like there's maybe the possibility of really building that Iraqi national identity again um, without a strong man doing it. Congressman, as the co-chair of the Congressional Iraq Caucus, what are the goals of the caucus and what do you hope to achieve in the next few years? Well, I think the goal is mainly, you know, it's myself and, and Seth Moulton and we're like, you know, both Iraq veterans. And the idea is to kind of bring people to a realization that Iraq is not just this perpetual war zone. It's real people. Um, there's a role we can play in it. If we walk away from Iraq, Iran's going to take it. And uh, and secondly, you know, I think part of our hope, I haven't talked to anybody else about this, but part of our hope is, you know, in my party and frankly, in the other party, you're starting to sense this belief among people that strong men work in the Middle East. They don't. In the era of Twitter and Facebook and information, nobody wants to be oppressed. There is no culture, no government, no culture, no people anywhere that want to be oppressed. The only reason it had worked in the past relatively is because when people got together to try to organize, they would, you know, there'd be a, a spy in the midst. Well, now with technology, 
you can't keep the human voice down. So instead of investing in old strategies of strongmen, which is what I worry we're tracking towards in Syria, for instance, it's really saying, okay, we're going through a time of massive social change. How do we shorten the time period of which it's extremely violent and ultimately come out the other side with some form of a representative government. And so I think our hope in the Iraq caucus is to bring attention to Iraq itself. uh, We want to take a trip there probably sometime this spring uh, to really build a dialogue between the Iraqi parliamentarians and us to, to continue to strengthen that alliance, but also to show that a formerly governed by a dictator state can succeed with a representative democracy. So, Congressman, you actually met with the Iraqi prime minister in March. Yes. Can you tell us more about the prime minister and the goals of his administration? Well, we didn't get into a ton of depth on that, at least that I can remember. You know, we were basically showing him and he was showing, you know, the appreciation of Iraq for America. And I think this is one of the misperceptions that the American people have, both about Iraq and Afghanistan, is that they don't want us there. You know, there's this belief that the Afghan Afghani population would love it if we left. Well, we have about an 85% approval rating in Afghanistan. And about the same holds true for Iraq. So he wanted to bring the message that he appreciates the alliance. We wanted to bring the message that we consider Iraq a very important partner. And, uh, and you know, as veterans that went there and, and fought for a free Iraq, uh, we'd love to see it succeed. Um, he did talk about the fact that he wants to bring inclusion. Obviously, ISIS was the biggest talk at that time, and he claimed they would defeat ISIS, and it appears that they have. But I think the one thing we need to keep in mind is, yeah, you can defeat the Islamic State by liberating territory. We haven't defeated the mindset. And I think this is a battle that has to be won within Islam. The United States cannot defeat the mindset of terrorism. Uh, All we can do is defeat actual terrorists where they exist. That fight has to be done within, and it's going to be moderate leaders in the Muslim community that are going to get the next second and third generation Muslims to reject this ideology. It's like how we won the Cold War. We did not win the Cold War you know, really just with a military buildup. It was because the second and third generation of Cold War kids began to reject that ideology and wanted something better. So, Brian, we wanted to interview you because you actually work on IRI's Iraq portfolio. What kind of work does IRI do in Iraq? So I'll give you a slightly long-winded answer, which is to say that IRI has been in Iraq since just after the United States invasion in 2003, at at which point we had a wide-reaching program with offices in Basra and Baghdad and Erbil all over the country working with civil society, working with with young men and young women, working on a number of different issues with provincial governments, with the national parliament, help them set up their own library of Congress. What we what we have now in, in 2017 is a focus on working with the provincial councils, also known as government councils, primarily on constituent relations and strategic communications. Because what we found in talking with both councils in the KRG and in Iraq was that where even where they were doing really good work, they struggled to communicate those issues. And so we're hoping that this is just a precursor to much more substantive work on real capacity building across the number of provinces we work on, which includes Nineveh and Babel and Anbar and Wasit. And we're hoping to expand that as well. Ambassador, what is Iraq's relationship like with its neighbors? Of all the neighbors of Iraq, Iran is the most influential. Uh, because the majority of the population is Shia, the militias are mostly Shia militias, and Iran supports them, and uh, the religious, Shia religious parties have historic uh, ties with Iran. Some of the leaders of the 
religious parties were refugees in Iran when Saddam was in, in power. Second to uh, uh, Iran is uh, uh, in the region is Turkey, which has, uh, uh, because of geography and because of the leadership of uh, Turkey, has uh, uh, strong ties with some of the Kurds and some of the Sunni areas. I remember that the uh, Ottomans uh, ruled Iraq, so uh, uh, there are uh, uh, families in Sunni Iraq uh, who, whose origins are in Turkey. Congressman, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, there, there's been a really kind of an, I, I think a good thing, although the reason's bad, which is a uniting of the greater Middle East against the common enemy of Iran. Um, and he's actually seen great, greater cooperation with Israel, which would have been unheard of, you know, a decade ago. Um, I think Iraq can play a pretty significant role in that greater in that greater battle. I would always encourage Iraq to begin to, um, if I was talking to the prime minister now, begin to explore that, but first and foremost, focus on making sure your country is healed because it frankly doesn't matter how big your military is if, uh, if people don't believe in your institutions. And I think the military can play a very important role in the rebuilding of the faith in the Iraqi government as well. I was going to ask you, what does that healing process look like? You know, I don't know. I, I think to, to pretend like I would know, um, I would have to pretend like I was Iraqi. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's understanding through tribal leaders, through political leaders, through military leaders, what does this look like? How do you, how do you heal divisions between Sunni and Shia? How do you build a national identity? Uh, building a national identity is essential, I think, to healing. And it's just like the United States. When we lose a national identity and it becomes all tribalistic, Republicans and Democrats in this case, um, it, it's brutal and, it, and it's messed up. Um, but I think, you know, the Iraqi military, again, it's the thing that people are most proud of in Iraq. Um, that may mean that there's an opportunity for the Iraqi military to, to some extent, deploy outside of its borders and continuing the fight against terrorism or against ISIS and allowing people to basically be proud of that and also being a, a force projector for the country. Um, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but you know, I certainly hope they can figure this out. Congressman, looking ahead to the May 2018 elections, do the tribal factors come into play? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. I, you know, I haven't paid enough attention to know what that's going to look like. Um, but you know, anytime a Anytime we can go successfully through an election and people can feel like their voice is heard. And that's the key. And this is why, frankly, when you talk about the Russians trying to undermine democracy, this is why this is a serious issue is because if somebody believes that either their vote is not counted or that the result of government is being influenced outside of the, the natural way of doing it, that undermines belief in the institution, which leads more to you know what we saw in the past. Brian, anything else to add? What I would say, and this is a gross oversimplification, is that there are a number of untoward actors who see this as an opportunity to consolidate power. They have guns, they have the ability to intimidate people, and they have, in some cases, a substantial amount of private or foreign funding behind them that's willing to back them to take elected office. Those, If they are able to run, these elections will likely not be fair. They will be able to intimidate people to vote for them, and then they will have, there will be outside influences directly in the Iraqi parliament, directly in Iraqi local government, and that's not something that any of the true, I would say, Iraqi Democrats want. The reason that Iraqi Democrats do not want these militias to have this kind of power is because it'll be a direct return to the kind of um, like sectarian breakdown that happened in 2006, 2007 with the Iraqi Civil War, and again in the lead up to the ISIS invasion. 
um, them holding power will be impetus enough and enough of a catalyst um, for the return of what people are calling ISIS 2.0 or ISIS 3.0, depending on who you talk to. And it may lead to just sort of a return to just extreme violence across the country and the complete marginalization of the Sunni communities. So is anything being done to ensure the validity of these elections in 2018? Yes. I would say that both internationally and domestically, that is domestically in Iraq, there is consensus that this is a major issue and that the elections coming up, while everyone says that every election is sort of a watershed moment, are it's a serious opportunity to actually provide a bulwark against like a new sectarian divide developing again. But I'm not sure that right now there's the funding in place from the international community, nor like the real political will inside the government in Baghdad to ensure that happens. And I would say that personally, I believe that much more care and effort and funding needs to be put into this as soon as possible through whatever mechanisms they can to ensure that if not directly like combating the influence of Shia militias, that they at least provide the people who are opposing them politically, not militarily, politically, um, with more of an even ground. Because right now the playing field is being tilted. Money is pouring in from non-democratic actors and not enough is being done to stop that. Congressman, what is in your mind the democratic trajectory of Iraq? I guess there's hope and fear. My hope is that you see Iraq that's begun to heal its wounds, that's begun to rebuild its infrastructure, educate its children, um, and begin to play a partner role with the United States in terms of shaping the Middle East. Uh, and, and not a Middle East that's just a that's a hegemony for the United States, a Middle East that actually empowers people and allows them to be free and be heard. Um, I'd love to see that happen. My fear is that I don't believe Iraq wants to be dominated by Iran at all, but my fear is that someday that, that they are, or there, or these energized Shia militias will end up being, you know, the long arm of, of the IRGC. And, and, um, so that's my fear, but truthfully, my hope is, and, and my belief, if I had to put all my money on something is in five years, we're going to see Iraq in a much better position. We made a almost fatal mistake when we left Iraq in 2011. And it was to me the most obvious train wreck coming that anybody could have seen. Um, we all knew what was going to happen when it, and it happened almost right on schedule, which is a, you know, a government that basically became totally sectarian, disaffected a number of people and, uh, and led to the, almost the collapse of the state. Congressman, why is it important for a democratic and unified Iraq to succeed? Will it have ripple effects in the region? Yeah. I mean, if you look at since the invasion of Iraq, there's been this misperception that after the United States invaded Iraq, then the Middle East basically fell apart. Um, they call that through the, you know, through the Arab Spring. And the Arab Spring, unfortunately, is now seen as a bad thing. I think it was a great thing. And I think it would have happened whether or not we were involved in Iraq or not. It was a Tunisian vendor that lit himself on fire because he was tired of being oppressed. And that sparked this whole, this whole thing that would have happened whether or not we went into Iraq. But I think the importance of a successful Iraq is there's a lot of people on talking heads on TV that basically want to believe or want to convince you that if only Saddam Hussein was still in power, you know, we'd all basically be just happy living great lives. Um, I actually think the Iraqi people, once they had information and Twitter and the ability to talk, they would have overthrown Saddam Hussein too. Um, 
But if we can transition from that, you know, to a broken 15-year period after the war to success and to representative democracy, I think it's an example of, you know, how to reform areas where people feel oppressed, but also look at the Syria, right? I mean, I'm disappointed when I hear that we're going to potentially accept the existence of Bashar al-Assad in power till 2021. There are people that do not want him there. And this is going to perpetuate a civil war. But if we can show that actually taking out a strong man and bringing reconciliation works, um, I think that bodes well for the Middle East and the, and the world. So to finish more on a lighter note, I think, because we got a lot of good information here, but I did want to ask you one question we ask to all of our guests. Yes. If you were to shoot off a time capsule into deep space and could only put in one object to represent Iraq, right. what would it be? It would definitely be uh, the uh, Garden of Eden. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah. you know, that that's is uh, in Nineveh. <laughs> uh, that's uh, timeless. Iraq is uh, so rich with uh, uh, historic sites and uh, monuments that I used to uh, tell them that one day uh, tourism uh, would be far more important for them than oil. But for that to happen, they need to, first of all, get their political act together uh, to have stability and then to have the infrastructure. And they follow the right economic policies. It can, it can be one of the most successful countries in that region. So you're optimistic then for Iraq's future? Iraq's future. For the long term. Great. Uh, but uh, this requires uh, for Iraqi leaders to, to rise to the occasion because if they don't, you could have several Iraqs. Uh, uh, that's the choice that they will have to make because if they don't accommodate each other and accept each other, respect each other's rights, uh, uh, then uh, you'll have either instability or if you have an agreement, then is that they would go their different ways. Uh, and uh, and uh, it is a turning kind of point for Iraq once again as to w which way they go. I mean, for us uh, as Americans, it's obviously very important. A lot of blood and uh, treasure as it's been spent, and uh, I think uh, Iraq is, you know, I believe that there is a, such a thing called the swing states. Uh, we have swing states in the United States in terms of our elections, but they're also international politics-wise or uh, regionally, there are swing states who, which way they go can make a difference. And I think Iraq is one such country, whichever it, uh, way it goes, would make a big impact. <laughs> Well, that's it for today's episode. Kudos to you, listeners. Obviously, your New Year's resolution was to learn more about other countries around the world, and you are succeeding. Ryan, today we learned a lot about Iraq's culture, history, and where it's headed next. But if our listeners were only to remember three key takeaways, what do you think they'd be? Well, for one, it's important to see Iraq as more than a battlefield. It's easy to recall the images of the 2003 invasion and, and the most recent routing out of ISIS. Uh, but there really is a lot of culture, a lot of history, and, and a lot of hope for these people. Second, Iraqis live for politics. It's practically a national sport. Whether or not this is a good thing is another question. And the third and final takeaway from this episode is just as Ambassador Khalil Zad said, right now is a pivotal point for Iraq as it tries to rebuild itself post-ISIS. It needs to focus on strengthening its democratic institutions in order to reinstill citizens' trust in its government.
So, Jesse, we want to thank our wonderful guests that joined us on this episode. Absolutely. First, a huge thank you to Ambassador Khalilzad, who was the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations from 2007 to 2009. You can follow him on Twitter at RealZalmeMK. And a big thank you to Congressman Adam Kinzinger. As a veteran, he's a leading voice on Iraq in Congress. You can follow him on Twitter at Rep Kinzinger. And finally, a big thank you to IRI's very own Brian Zubrick. If you want to learn more about IRI's work in Iraq, you can visit our website at IRI.org. And if you like what you heard, rate us, subscribe, leave a comment in the comment section. Tell us your New Year's resolution. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your grandma. Tweet at us at IRI Global or send us an email at podcast at IRI.org. Listeners, if you made it this far, you've been rewarded, as always, with a little nugget, a little hint at next episode. Chessie, do you have the hint? Yes, I do, Ryan. Next month, we're going to take a look at a country that, at its largest width, is 30 miles wide. That is small. I know, right? I'm excited. 30 miles wide? That's it. Yep. So, listeners, if you know the answer to this trivia question, make sure to leave a comment on iTunes or shoot us an email at podcast at IRI.org. Chessie, we started the episode off uh, coordinating our voices. you want to do the same thing for the outro? Absolutely. Ready? One, two, three. See Until you next it. time. <laughs> Did you do that on purpose? No. <laughs> Can you use that? That's hilarious. I love that. We're clearly so coordinated. <laughs> <laughs>